Hi, my name is James, and the Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 5, 1 through 4. Let me sing for my loved one a love song for his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it, cleared away its stones, planted it with excellent vines, built a tower inside it, and dug out a wine vat in it. He expected to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten grapes. So now, you who live in Jerusalem, you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done for it? When I expected it to grow good grapes, why did it grow rotten grapes? The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Bill. The New Testament reading is found in Hebrews 12, 9 through 11. What's more, we had human parents who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? Our human parents disciplined us for a little while, as it seemed best to them, but God does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline is fun while it lasts, but it seems painful at the time. Later, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Colleen. Thanks for standing for the gospel reading It's found in John 15, verses 1 through 4. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. He removes any of my branches that don't produce fruit, and he trims any branch that produces fruit so that it will produce even more fruit. You are already trimmed because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. A branch can't produce fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning as your kids, as your beloved sons and daughters. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our midst, that you would open our eyes to see, that you'd open our ears to hear, that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures, and that you would then ignite our hearts with your holy love, that we might be changed from the inside out and be sent out into the world to bear good fruit for your kingdom. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And again, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're absolutely delighted that you're here. And our prayer is that you would discover the spirit of the living Christ at work in our midst, um, demonstrating his love and care for you. As we mentioned earlier, this is the fifth Sunday in the season of Lent. It also happens to be opening day for baseball fans. 
There's like six of us in the room still holding on to the hope of baseball. Uh, But the season of Lent is this 40-day season in the life of the church where we journey with Jesus to the cross and prepare to celebrate his resurrection. It's this season of fasting and simplicity and reflection and prayer as we walk with him through this time. And during this particular season, we are looking at, in our sermon series, we are doing a series called, Who Do You Say That I Am? And we're looking at this series of statements, series really of claims that Jesus makes about himself in the gospel according to John. Each of these sayings begins with two words. It begins with, I am. And in using these particular words, to us, they seem like just simple, like I am kinds of words. But Jesus, in using these particular words, is actually identifying himself with Yahweh. He is identifying himself with the God of Israel, the God who came to Moses in the wilderness and appeared to him in a burning bush and commissioned him to go back into Egypt to rescue God's people out of that place and bring them back into the land that God had promised Abraham. And when Moses was in this dialogue with God, he said to him, but God, when I go back to my people, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am who I am. So when Jesus uses these words, he identifies himself with Yahweh. Then after this statement, he goes on to use a series of loaded images to describe exactly who he is. And he identifies himself as the sole source of life and salvation. The first word that we looked at is, I am the bread of life. And we looked at the reality that Jesus is both the source and the substance for everything that we truly need. The second word we looked at was Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am the one who dispels darkness, who brings order out of chaos, and causes all life to flourish. The third statement we looked at is, I am the good shepherd. Uh, Unlike all of the other shepherds of Israel, I am the good shepherd, the one who gives rather than takes, the one who particularly gives of myself for the sake of my flock. And then last week we looked at the phrase, I am the resurrection and the life, that Jesus is the one who raises us up from the dead and who covers the distance that our sin created. That Jesus is the one who can bring us back to life and bring us back to God. Today we're looking at the phrase, I am the true vine, my father is the vineyard keeper, and we are his branches. I grew up in a small farming community in northern Iowa, small like 2,700 people, a whole town is sort of surrounded by farmland. My father uh, grew up on an acreage, uh, working with animals, uh, spent most of his career when I was a kid working in farm implement dealerships, working in farm-related businesses. My mom, who's here visiting with us this morning, uh, yeah, mom, she survived my childhood. She was a florist when I was a kid, and even now spends a lot of time gardening and has these beautiful gardens that produce this great fruit. And I inherited none of their ability or knowledge with plants. (laughs) Whatever the opposite of green thumb is, uh, that's what I am. 
Uh, anytime that Sarah and I have tried to do a garden, all we've managed to do is kill everything that we plant. So, you know, you give me a book about gardening, about plants, ask me to read it and come back and take a test or make a presentation, I'm good to go. If you give me a seed and tell me to come back with a crop, it's probably best that we make plans to go eat out somewhere. It's just not going to go well. And there's a sense, I think, for a lot of us that even though we may have an ability with plants, that for a lot of us, we are city people. We live in a modern Western city, and we're disconnected from a lot of agricultural sort of life, that we don't work the land like we've seen people in the past. And one of the challenges for us, of course, is the fact that the Bible is written in the context of an agricultural society, written to people who are most often farmers and shepherds. In fact, when the Bible is looking to describe the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it frequently uses the phrase that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And as good Americans, we think, oh, that means it's a land that's got a lot of cows and bees, right? And that's not the world of the ancient Israelites. When it says a land is flowing with milk, it would have been an imagery that would have meant sheep and goats, And the land flowing with honey would not have been the land of beekeepers, but the land of people who tended dates and grapes and turned those fruit into a kind of syrup that's described as honey. It's a land of shepherds and farmers. It's no mistake then that Jesus, when looking to use imagery to describe himself, refers to himself as the good shepherd and the true vine, speaking directly into the culture and the context. It's also that we find that throughout the scriptures that there's a a lot of imagery related to things like fruit. Fruit becomes a powerful image, a powerful metaphor throughout the scriptures. The very first place that we find this is in the opening chapter of Genesis. And God creates Adam and Eve, and he creates them in his image and his likeness. And then he commissions them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and then to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it, to bring God's image and his plans and purposes to bear on all of his creation, really to reign and rule on his behalf. As the story continues forward, we look at Noah's life after the flood. God reiterates these commands to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When God calls Abram and makes a covenant promise with him, he says, you will be fruitful, and from you shall actually come entire nations. So in the scriptures, fruitfulness becomes a metaphor, it becomes a symbol, it becomes an image of reproduction. But with humanity, it also becomes connected with God's kingdom purposes in the world. So God created all sorts of animals and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as well. But with humanity, he created us in his image and likeness and told us to rule on his behalf. So the idea is that when humanity is fruitful and multiply and fills the earth, that God's image is made known everywhere. That God's plans and purposes are brought to bear on his creation. That his kingdom comes and his will is done as his image bearers go out and proclaim and enact his kingdom throughout his land. So it's no surprise then that in this connection, that this implication, that uh, fruitfulness also became a picture of kingdom faithfulness. 
of obedience to God's commands and submission to his rule. For example, in the opening psalm, we find this image right there that those who delight in the law of the Lord, those who meditated on it day and night, really it's the image of those who do what it is that God commands, are like a tree planted by streams of water that bear fruit in their season. So fruitfulness not only is a symbol of reproduction, but it really becomes a metaphor for faithfulness, particularly to kingdom faithfulness, to faithfulness to the king and his kingdom. It's probably no surprise then that we find that Israel is frequently described in agricultural sorts of terms and frequently talked about in terms of faithfulness. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel is frequently referred to as a vine. We find this in Psalm chapter 80. Uh, The nation is described as the Lord's vineyard. Israel is the vine that the Lord brought out of Egypt and planted in the ground that he had cleared. And our Old Testament reading today from Isaiah chapter 5, Israel is the vineyard that the Lord loves, the vineyard that he planted on a fertile hillside that he protected and nourished and cared for. And like any good vineyard keeper then expected his vine to produce good fruit. But instead of good fruit, he found rotten grapes. The passage goes on to say, I expected justice and righteousness. Instead, I found bloodshed and distress. Israel failed to produce the fruit that God called it to produce. So when Jesus declares, I am the true vine, and my father is the vineyard keeper, and you are his branches, what Jesus is saying is that Jesus is identifying himself as the true Israel, as the one who is everything that Israel was supposed to be. He's saying that he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to and all of his hopes for Israel, that he, unlike Israel, is the faithful vine that produces good fruit for the Father. He says, I am the true vine. I am the one who is both righteous and just. I am the one who brings about righteousness and justice in the land. I am the one who fully bears God's image and and lives a life of kingdom faithfulness. I am the true vine. And his father is the vineyard keeper. And those who believe in Jesus... Those who express that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Messiah, that he is the source of all life and the only place that we find salvation, those who commit their lives to him and trust their lives to him become a part of the vine, become a part of the Father's vineyard. And he goes on to say to his disciples, this is then what that life looks like. For those who have believed in Jesus, for those who have said, I will follow you, this is what life looks like. And he continues with this image and he says this, he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch can't produce fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine. You're just the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then, then you will produce fruit. But without me, you can't do anything. 
If you don't remain in me, you will be like a branch that is thrown out and dries up. Those branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you want and it will be done for you. And he says this, he says, my father is glorified when you produce much fruit. In the same way, you prove that you are my disciples. See, the Father desires and delights in fruitfulness. And we think about our own lives, we think of the the things that we do, the places that we create or make or work. We take great pride in the things that we can produce. Think about the time and the energy and the effort and the care that we use to, that we do to make the things that we make. Whether we're baking something in the kitchen, we're making something at work, whatever it is that we're putting our hands to, we take great pride in what we produce. We take even greater pride in what our kids produce, right? No matter how awful it looks, we frame it and hang it. And we hold on to it for an incredibly long amount of time, be long past the point that our kids have stopped caring about whatever it is that was made. But there's a sense that as good parents, we take great delight in the things that our kids do. The father is the same way. You think about this moment in Jesus' life as he goes to be baptized. As he's coming up out of the water, the heavens depart and the dove descends and a voice cries out and says, this is my son. With him, the one I love, with him I am well pleased. He desires and delights in fruitfulness. And when Jesus is talking about kind of the end of times and talking about these times when our lives come to an end and we find ourselves before the Father. He frequently uses the image of the Father looking at those who have come to him and saying these words, well done, good and faithful servants. Come and enter into my rest. The Father desires and delights in fruitfulness. But as the text goes on, it makes it really clear that fruitfulness only follows those who follow Jesus. Fruitfulness follows those who follow Jesus. Jesus makes it very clear that apart from him, we can do nothing. That we can't bear any fruit. That fruitfulness is impossible without Jesus, but it becomes an expectation with him. It's impossible without him, but it's an expectation with him. Fruitfulness flows from Jesus into our lives through the Holy Spirit and produces something in us that we can't produce ourselves. He brings forth an abundant harvest. It's our connection with Jesus that leads to obedience, which results in greater connection and greater obedience. But it begins with that connection. It begins and it's rooted and it's founded and birthed out of our relationship with Jesus, out of our relationship with the true vine. It's not our striving that produces fruitfulness. It's our abiding. So we often think that it's obedience that comes first and then love. That by being obedient... We demonstrate that we are loved. But with Jesus, it's being loved that makes us obedient. 
we oftentimes have it backwards and we reverse the direction. I was thinking about this and thinking about my own childhood and some of us have experiences either with a parent or a boss or a spouse or a friend. Uh, for me, I experienced a lot of that with my dad. My dad was a toy tractor collector. Uh, so he loved to collect like toy tractors and combines from John Deere and Massey Ferguson and put them on shelves all around in our basement. He was so passionate about this hobby that there was a big sign that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> like, I think my kids feel the same way in the bathtub as they're struggling over who gets the most toys. But not only did he collect these toy tractors, but he would restore them and clean them up for people. And he would frequently ask us to come and be a part of the process. So he would have the body all prepared, and then he would ask us to come into his workroom uh, while he attached the wheels to the base of the tractor. And the way we would do that is we'd hold the tractor steady uh, while he would pound in a rivet to make sure that the, the wheel was attached correctly. And I remember walking into that room feeling unbelievably nervous and worried, even at times a little bit afraid, and believing that if I do this right, if I just hold it steady enough, then and only then will I feel loved, will I feel accepted, will I feel approved. And I'd freely walk in, nervous and afraid and shaking and never quite get it right. See, for many of us, we've bought into the lie that it's when we are obedient that we are then lovable. But the good news of Jesus Christ is this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He proved his love for us that while we were far from God, while we were his enemies, he demonstrated his love and came to us and gave himself for us to show us that we are loved and it's in being loved that we become obedient. It's not through our striving and through our work and through our effort and all of those things, but it's through being loved by him. There is an inseparable connection between love and obedience, but too often we reverse the direction. We believe that if we obey, if we perform, if we do what's right, if we get it all we got, do our best, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that then we'll be lovable. God says, no, you're loved, and my love changes you from the inside out. So we want you to know this morning that wherever you find yourself, and what are thoughts that you've had and experienced in relationships in your past, there is a Father who loves you and invites you to come and experience His love through Jesus Christ. That you are loved, not because of your striving, but because you're His kid. And He wants to his love to abide in you and you to abide in His love. And it's through His love that we become fruitful. It's through his love that we become faithful. It starts there. There's a scripture that says, we love God not because we loved him first, but because he loved us first, right? We are, we are loving because we've been loved. We sometimes reverse the direction he loved us first. Jesus said in this passage, he says, as the Father loved me, I too have loved you. So remain in my love. 
He loves us and He invites us to abide there, to continually receive His love because His love makes us loving. His love changes us. His love makes us fruitful. So fruitfulness, this faithful obedience to God's kingdom follows those who follow Jesus. It flows from Jesus into us. Jesus also says another thing about fruitfulness that sometimes is hard for us to hear. It says fruitfulness also requires cutting. It always requires cutting. Vine branches, if you spent time around any vine of any kind, know they have a tendency to just run wild. <laughs> right? Vines have a tendency to, to kind of grow in and get all tangled up to go in all the wrong places and all the wrong directions. If you spend time with grapevines, what happens is, is the more branches that there are and the more tangled up they get, the smaller and the smaller and the more rotten the fruit becomes and eventually become entirely unproductive. So vines have to be trimmed. Branches have to be shaped so they can grow in the right direction. Some of the shoots have to be severed off so that others can grow stronger. Likewise, the path to kingdom faithfulness, the path to obedience requires cutting. Jesus says, it's he, the Father, removes any of my branches that don't produce fruits. And he trims any branch that produces fruit so that it will produce even more fruit. N.T. Wright on commenting on this passage said, we get the knife either way. And there is a knife involved. But this is the uncomfortable and painful part about following Jesus. And it's the part that sharply contrasts with a modern notion, with a lot of modern notions about spiritual enlightenment and self-fulfillment. There's a sharp contrast with them. We believe that we can find this kind of fruitfulness or joy or happiness in our life by pursuing our own direction, by having a sort of Burger King-like mentality that we have it our way right away, right? Whatever we want on it, that's what we get on it. Whatever we don't want on it, we don't have on it, but we choose. We have it our way, we have it right away, it's fast, it's easy, it's cheap. And we think that that is the path toward wholeness in our lives, toward joy. We find ourselves saying that the goal is to have our desires fulfilled rather than having our desires changed or challenged. We're uncomfortable with that. I know I just want my desires to be fulfilled. And we think if our desires are fulfilled, then at that point we'll be happy. And so we pursue self-indulgence, right? Whatever it is, whatever it is, I want this, I want that. It doesn't matter what I do, uh, whatever I do, where I do it, how often I do it, whoever I do it with, as long as it makes me happy, as long as it makes me feel good, then that is the path in which I am going to take. But Jesus says the path of kingdom faithfulness, the path of fruitfulness in the life of God is the way of the cross. It's a way of submission and a way of self-denial. It's a way of saying, not my will be done, but your will be done. Not my way, but your way. Not my kingdom, but your kingdom. Not 
my version of joy, but your joy being made complete in me and recognizing that that is something profoundly better and truer than anything I could possibly think or dream or imagine. That is the path toward joy. It's this path in which the Lord shapes our desires, orders our direction, and severs our ties to selfishness and sin so that we might bear good fruit, fruit that lasts. Fruitfulness requires cutting. And so the question that we ask ourselves as the people of God is what is it at this moment, in this time, and in this season of my life is the Lord wanting to prune? For some of us, it may be that the Lord is asking you that, for Him to be able to prune an unhealthy or inappropriate relationship. That you know that this relationship doesn't lead toward true and abundant life. That this relationship is unhealthy in some way and the Lord wants to cut it off, but we're clinging to it. And He says, no, trust me. We need to redirect in another place because here you'll find true joy. For some of us, it may be habits or addictions that we're holding on to. Things that we cling to to find some sort of um, meaning or purpose in our lives. We find that those things are actually choking out our life. And the Lord is inviting us to say, bring that out into the open. Confess and find the kind of help you need so you can be set free from that and move into a new kind of life that God has set out for you. For some of us, it's the pruning is those, the unforgiveness and the bitterness that we're holding on to. It's those places in our life where we feel like it's easier to hold on to the pain than it is to allow the Lord to heal it and let it go. And the Lord is inviting us, because we have been forgiven, to allow that forgiveness to flow through us and to trust that He will enact His justice instead of our own, and inviting us to let that go. For some of us, it may be our comfort. That the Lord's wanting to, to prune some of our comfort so that we can go to the people and the places that He's called us to go and bear fruit. Where is it the Lord is asking or wanting to prune in our lives this morning? N.T. Wright says, pruning is always painful. It's a kind of bereavement. But he goes on to say, but the vine dresser is never closer to the vine, never more intimately concerned with it than when wielding the pruning knife. See, pruning is always deeply personal. It's always painful. (laughs) But with the Lord, it's also always loving. It's always loving. The Father delights and desires fruitfulness. Fruitfulness follows Jesus. And the Lord wants to shape us through His Word and His Holy Spirit to move us in the right directions, to call us into the right places, to reorder our desires and affections that we might bear good fruit that lasts. The writer of Hebrews says, the Lord disciplines those He loves. It's not a demonstration of punishment, but a demonstration of love. It's not punitive. It's a sign of His loving and caring relationship in our lives. He goes on to say, no discipline is fun while it lasts, but it it seems painful at the time. 
But later, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. The Father desires and delights in fruitfulness. Fruitfulness follows those who follow Jesus. And fruitfulness always requires cutting. There is some sacrifice involved, and that is no more clearly displayed for us than at this table, where we come and to receive from the one who is the bread of life, whose very body was blessed, broken, and given for us, that we might find life and salvation. And we come and drink from the blood of the true vine, the one who shed his blood for us and for many for the forgiveness of sins the one who demonstrated for us that we don't earn his love through obedience, but it's by his self-giving, self-sacrificial, unending love for us that when we abide in that, when we receive that, he changes us from the inside out and he makes us fruitful to the joy of his Father and for the good of the world, that the world might see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven through our lives and in our lives and our relationships. Let's pray as we come to the table this morning.